We're in Luke 6, verses 37 to 42. We are right in the middle of Jesus' sermon after he has officially chosen the twelve disciples. He began his sermon by describing what it means to become a disciple of Jesus. The ones who are blessed, the ones who receive divine grace, they are the poor, the mourner, the persecuted. To borrow from Jesus' sermon in Matthew, it is to enter through the narrow gate. It is to come humbly before Christ, admitting the insufficiency of our own righteousness, the insufficiency of our own works, and it is to fully rely on Christ himself. But the narrow gate, is that's the beginning, that's the entrance. The narrow gate leads to a narrow path. And so the path of the disciple, the narrow path, is a path that involves becoming like Jesus over the course of a lifetime. And we saw last week that one of the primary uh, identifiers of a Christ follower is a supernatural, divinely given, Holy Spirit-empowered love for the enemy. This morning, I think Jesus just keeps coming at us with these uh, commands that I think are really hard for us to hear and difficult for us to follow. They, they, They demand, again, a complete reliance on God himself. We're called to take on the very disposition of Jesus, to have the very heart of Christ. You see, with all of our commands to become like Jesus, we might get confused and think that we're just talking about sort of doing a few outward things, be really nice to the poor or be kind to those who hurt you or just, you know, kind of what would Jesus do? Just sort of do some of the things that Jesus did and you're becoming like Christ. But we're seeing, I think, in this sermon that we're not only called to put on these outward actions of Jesus, but as God's children, we are commanded to take on the very disposition of Jesus, a disposition of love towards the enemy and a disposition of mercy towards the undeserving. That's why we said this starts through entering the narrow gate. This requires a a change of heart. This requires a new nature. This requires regeneration, or you might say, to be born again. God's people are a people who have been given a new heart that can obey Christ, both inwardly and outwardly. But we know then that that change isn't instantaneous. We don't snap our finger and change, and it's not automatic. So this morning, we ask God to search our hearts, reveal any wicked way in us so that we might turn from those sinful attitudes, those sinful judgmentalism that we'll see in a moment, and we replace that wickedness, that sin, with God's righteous alternative. In essence, we're, we're, we're being pushed by Christ to put on his very heart. And that brings us to our passage this morning. What does it look like to become a, or to be a follower of Christ? Number one, true disciples of Christ are growing in merciful attitudes towards others. Look in verses 37 and 38. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, 
pressed down, shaken together, running over will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. So I think what will be most helpful in sort of trying to grasp what Jesus is getting at in these first couple verses is to take the four commands there. So we'll look at the four commands and then we'll sort of circle back to this promise or this warning that's associated with the command. So you have these four imperatives, these four commands. The first one is judge not. Now this obviously does not preclude making ethical evaluations of of ourselves and of others. Jesus got just finished pronouncing woes or judgment on those who are satisfied with this world, those who are satisfied with their own sense of righteousness. He will produce further woes, even in the book of Luke, in chapter 11, verse 42, he will again say, but woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every, every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. For, and he goes on, for you love the best seed in the synagogue. He is making a judgment about the behavior and the attitudes of the Pharisees. So clearly, this is not to be taken the way you know, we might be tempted in our flesh to take it, that you're not allowed to put some sort of ethical standard over me. In fact, the very command, judge not, is a judgment. So what is, what is condemned? This is, a, this is a present tense imperative. It's as if Jesus is saying, stop judging. So what is condemned is a harsh, compassionless, vengeful, we'll see in a, a minute, condemnation. It is viewing others with an arrogance, with a hostility, uh, an attitude that tends to put people beyond even the reach of God's grace. What's condemned here is treating others in the exact opposite way we have been treated in Christ. In light of God's grace shown to us in Jesus Christ, we put off then, we put away this sense of hostility, this sense of superiority, this hardness toward others, because we are rejoicing that we have been shown mercy and then we seek to show mercy to others. It's no surprise then that Jesus follows up his command not to judge with with a related command. I think we can kind of take these two together. Stop condemning. Do not condemn. Condemning is sort of the, the end of judgmentalism. We go beyond making harsh harsh judgments and we pronounce the sentence. We make ourselves the judge, jury, and executioner. Do not condemn, Jesus commands us. One commentator, I liked the way he said this, judging and condemning seeks status by negation. That is, Judging and condemning seeks to make ourselves look better by judging and condemning others. We seek to elevate ourselves by lowering those around us. If I can make myself better than you, then I can attain a status in my mind and hopefully in the mind of those who are around me that I'm superior to you. So one of the ways that I've had to repent in my own life and seeking to elevate my own self, 
in degrading others is overusing sarcasm. Now, I'm not saying all sarcasm is sinful, it's, but I can overuse sarcasm. It's easy to hide your self-seeking status with sarcastic remarks that are really, in your heart of hearts, meant to tear down and condemn others. With a sarcastic joke here and there, I can elevate myself in the eyes of those who are around me. So we avoid the overuse of sarcasm, the, the tearing down of others. I was trying to tell my boys the other day, we don't use our words to tear down others. And one of them said, yes, you're right, we use our words to tear up others. <laughs> well, that's not the goal. We avoid being a fault finder. We avoid being a fault finder. We, what, what Jesus is calling us to is to review, refuse to take on the role that does not belong to you. Refuse to take on the role that does not belong to you. One of the roles we are tempted to take on that does not belong to us is the all-authoritative judge. We want to usurp God's role as judge, and we want to be the avenger of every wrong. We elevate ourselves to a position that we were never designed to have. Jesus then follows these two negative commands... Stop doing this with two positive commands, the first of which is give. That is, or forgive. We'll get to give. Forgive. That is to forgive the guilty. It is not pretending as if no one sinned. It is not pretending as if nothing sinful has occurred. Instead, it is choosing to treat those who have sinned against you as if they have not sinned against you. That's what, how God treats us. He, re, he does not remember our sins against us. It's not that God has amnesia. It's that he chooses not to use them against us. We forgive. I have a, I, would, I wouldn't say he's a friend, he's more of an acquaintance from back in Springfield. He was a felon, he was in and out of prison most of his life, he was addicted to meth and caused all kinds of havoc, committed all kinds of crimes in pursuit of fulfilling his addiction and sustaining his sin, and then Jesus saved him. And he began to dedicate his life to following Jesus. And he, he, he actually started this ministry in Springfield to uh, preach the gospel to those who are addicted to drugs. And he started this addiction ministry. And people began to take notice that in this area that's known for their use of meth and, and the, the prevalence of drugs, that, man, people are coming to Christ and they're actually sustaining this this obedience to the Lord, and word began to spread so far that it made its uh, way to the governor of Missouri. And recently, John was pardoned of all of his past crimes. And so, that's sort of a long way to get to what is forgiveness. I took the long road, but that is forgiveness. The pardon says you are now going to be treated as if you did not commit those crimes. Nobody's saying the crimes didn't happen. 
Nobody's saying the crimes were not committed, but they're saying you will now, from now on, be treated as if you had not committed those crimes. God's people, who have experienced the forgiveness of Christ, are called then in becoming like Christ to be a forgiving people. Forgive as God in Christ has forgiven you. Fourth, then, we are to become like our Heavenly Father. We must be generous. We must give. This generosity should, should characterize those who know that every good gift comes down from the Father of lights. Those who know that God sovereignly distributes his gifts to the just and to the unjust. Those who know that God gave his best in sending his son ought to be characterized by our giving, by our generosity in our own lives. So we have those four commands. Judge not, condemn not, forgive, and give. And then attached to these commands is a promise. Or it might be a warning. It's a promise for some. It's it's a warning for others. And, And here's what's attached to these commands. Judge not and you will not be judged. Condemn not and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Give and God will give to you. Here's here's what Jesus is saying. Your disposition towards others becomes God's disposition towards you. If you are a harsh judge, you are judged harshly by God. If you condemn others, you are condemned by God. If you refuse to forgive, you will not be forgiven. The standard by which you evaluate others becomes the standard by which you are evaluated by God. These are Jesus' words here. We are treated by God based on the way that we treat others. So we might say to the one who is characterized by harshness, condemnation, bitterness, and stinginess, this is a warning Jesus wasn't just speaking theoretically when he gave the golden rule to treat others the way you would like to be treated. Here he's, call, he's recalling the golden rule and saying, because you will be treated by God based on the way you treat others. One Puritan preacher pointed out that if we are unforgiving towards others, then we, we should be warned against praying the uh, Lord's Prayer. Especially the part where Jesus says to pray, forgive as we have forgiven others. So if you are unforgiving and you pray that, you are praying your own death sentence. So there's a warning here for those who are characterized by the sins that Jesus condemns. But, but to those who hate their sin... And to those who hate it, even, when, even after coming to Christ, when they find it in themselves, to those who have been born of God, those who have a new nature, who have been given sight by the Holy Spirit to see the richness of the forgiveness that they've been granted in Christ, to those, this is, this is a promise that's meant to prompt us towards obedience. It's meant to prompt us to continual obedience. So this isn't salvation by works. 
It is a recognition, though, that Jesus does more than just forgive people. He transforms them into his image, and those who he is transforming into his image begin to take on the very disposition of Jesus and will not, over the course of their life, be characterized by judgmentalism and condemnation and a lack of forgiveness and stinginess, but they will be characterized by Christ as the Holy Spirit works in their Heart. So this isn't, this isn't justification by works. It is, a, it is a warning to those who are walking in the sin, remaining in the sin. And it's a promise to God's people meant to prompt us to continually obey God. Martin Luther pointed out that when we, when we persist in our sin, if there's no repentance in our life, if there's no desire to become like Jesus, then we are demonstrating through our works that we do not know God. Martin Luther said this, Dost thou publish his sins? That's another, another person's sins. Do, do you publish another person's sins? Then truly thou art not a child of your merciful Father, for otherwise thou wouldst be also as he, merciful. It is certainly true that we cannot show as great mercy to our neighbor as God has to us, but it is the true work of the devil that we do the very opposite of mercy, which is a sure sign that there is not a grain of mercy in us. So there's this principle that Jesus is giving us, that God treats you the way that you, have been tre- the way that you treat others, but if you are in Christ, you are growing into the image of Christ and you are... Uh, treating others the way Christ would treat them. It's a promise that should prompt us to become more like Jesus. Even those who have been forgiven of their sins and stand before a righteous God, though our, our justification is in Christ alone, we still might even put ourselves in the path of God's discipline. So, so the idea isn't, oh, you're in Christ, you don't have to worry about a, a warning here. No, we can still put ourselves in the path of God's discipline. All the punishment that, was, that should have come upon us has been placed on Christ, but we can still bear the discipline of the Lord. Not as a means of punishment, Christ took that, but as a means of discipline. I think you see it in 1 Peter when... Peter tells husbands, if you treat your wives harshly, you hinder your prayers. There's still a sense in which this is a warning for those of us who are in Christ. It's as if God is saying in 1 Peter, ladies, I got your back. Okay, I'm not going to let these men trample all over you and treat you harshly. It will hinder them because I will, I will in some sense, treat them the way that they are treating you. Jesus expands on that. Last promise to give, more than he does the others. Give, and it will be given unto you. And here's the expansion. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use it, it will be measured back to you. Again, the principle, if you are generous with others, God is ultra generous with you. He gives back to those who give to others. And his giving is extravagant. It's pressed down. It's shaken together. It's heaped on top. It's spilling over. It's like when you go to the gas station and you get the icy, you know, and you fill it to the brim and that thing's half air. So what do you do? You pound it down 
This is a secret for those of you who don't know. You pound it down, you'll be able to fit more in there, and then you don't get the flat lid, you get the dome lid so that you can fill it past the brim, and then you can even put a little, a little topper on there. You, it's filled to the top, it's overflowing. His giving is that generous. So then the question is, what does this what does this look like? What is the overabundance of God giving back to his people who are a generous people look like? Is this, is this a prosperity passage? Is this a promise that I'll, God will take care of all my bills and, and I'll give me a nice new ride and my house will be upgraded with all the latest features? What's, what's going on here? Well, we've already seen that uh, there's these future rewards for those who enter through the narrow gate. There's this future vindication. There's this future glory for those who come to Christ. There is the promise that our mourning will turn to laughter, that our hunger will turn to satisfaction. The poor are given the kingdom of God, and, and we wait the full manifestation of that. So there's this future reward for God's people. But there's also a present expression of God's generosity toward us. And Jesus talks about this in the book of Mark. He says, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time Houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. It's as if Jesus is saying, what did, what did it cost you to come unto me? What did you give up to follow me? Did, it, did your family abandon you? Which is not typically a reality in, in the United States, could be. But um, many Christians face this on a regular basis. Did your family abandon you? You've been given a family a hundredfold in God's church. Did you lose your home? In God's church, a hundred homes are now open to you. You are now invited in, in the church, to God's people in their homes. So maybe the provision for you is not a lack of financial hardship. Maybe it's not a brand new Lamborghini, but... God's provision, God's generous blessing to you is the giving of his church. And God's church, this church, will not allow you to go hungry. This church will not allow you to go bankrupt. God gives generously to those who give. So we see these these commands are surrounded on all sides by God's grace given to us in the past continually given to us in the present, and God's grace that we await in the future. So as we think about these commands, don't forget about the grace of God. Really what we're, what we're being pushed to is to become like Jesus, to become a dispenser of grace, to become someone who is quick to forgive, to become someone who is quick to give and to be generous To become someone who is merciful when the world wants us to be harsh and judgmental. What is at stake here is becoming like Christ. That's what Jesus gets at in those next couple verses with this parable. True disciples of Christ are following Jesus, not self-righteous teachers. Look in verse 39 and 40. He also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? 
Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. It's hard as you read this passage not to contrast Jesus' commands to his disciples with the harsh, critical, judgmental spirit of the Pharisees that continually arises and shows up in the Gospels. One of the most obvious examples we'll get to at some point is the parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee. The Pharisee walks in, he says, thank you that I'm not like that guy and that lady. I'm just so glad that I'm better than everyone else in this world. Well, Jesus, I think, is, is getting at the problem with the Pharisee is that the Pharisee is blind. He cannot see clearly because he's blinded by his own self-righteousness. This leads the Pharisee then to a harsh, critical spirit because when you're better than everyone else, it's hard to deal graciously with everyone else. When you're better than everyone else, it's easy to be critical of everyone else. So I think in context, in Luke 6, Jesus is getting at a warning here. Don't follow the way of the Pharisee. Don't follow the way of the self-righteous. Don't follow the way of the critical and the harsh and the judgmental. Follow the way of Jesus. Because if a blind man leads another blind man, they both fall into a pit. Now the pit here is something more than just like a, a little... Uh, ditch on the side of the road. It is a mammoth-sized hole in the ground. You're headed for destruction if you follow the way of self-righteousness. The blind can't lead the blind. Ultimately, we'll see as Luke 6 develops and we, we kind of get to the end of Jesus' sermon, the blind man, the self-righteous one, is the one who hears Jesus' words but does not do them. The blind man is the one who hears, specifically in Luke 6, Jesus' instruction to love your enemy and to stop judging and decides to persist in their own way, persist in their own self-satisfaction, in their own righteousness. So instead of being conformed to the way of the Pharisee, seek to become like Jesus. Seek to become like Christ because a disciple becomes like his teacher in verse 40. A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. You know, a student at this time in history didn't just kind of go to school every once in a while. You would essentially live alongside your teacher. You would evaluate different people and you say, I'm going to attach myself to this person and to his teaching. And then you were utterly and completely dependent on this person. There was no Google. There wasn't even books that you could turn to. You weren't going to typically outgrow your teacher because everything you were going to learn was going to be dispensed from the top down. And so the goal then in submitting yourself to a teacher was to become like your teacher. You've heard the phrase like father, like son, or like mother, like Daughter, well, this is like teacher, like disciple. So the question is, which, which way are we being discipled? Towards the way of self-righteousness and Phariseeism, or towards the way of the teacher, the Lord Jesus Christ? 
because you become like the one who is your teacher. I think this fits well with the verse we ended with last week. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. The goal that Jesus is pressing towards is that we become in character and in behavior like our Heavenly Father. Be merciful as your Heavenly Father is merciful. And by the way, God the Father is merciful. Don't buy into this false division that that God is constantly angry and Jesus is the one who is nice. That one is different than the other. To become more merciful is to become like the Father. Jesus is one in essence. We say this often, but he's one in essence with the Father. There's no division in the Godhead. It would be impossible for Jesus' character to be different from the character of the Father. So God the Father is merciful. I think you can see in the Old Testament, people say, oh, well, read the Old Testament. Read it. Read it and ask yourself, is God the Father merciful? You'll see it. You'll see it even in the law that God is merciful and kind. To become merciful is to become like the Father. So in this passage, we reflect the character of God when we are slow to judge and we are quick to forgive. And I think one of the ways that we can reflect God's character here in our lives is to adopt what we might call a charitable disposition. In 1 Corinthians 13, we are told that love believes all things and love hopes all things. I think having a charitable disposition means believing the best of others when we don't have all the facts. Now, I'm not trying to live in la-la land. I'm not trying to deny what's clear and evident and obvious. But what, what I think we should be striving after is not to assume the worst when there's wiggle room there. I, I think what we could call this is a loving realism. We're not unrealistic. We deal in the realm of reality But when we have room to assume good in others, we do so till all doubt is erased. I think we need to recognize in our own hearts that self-righteousness tends to fill the space that ought to be occupied by humility. And so when I'm unloving, I'm uncharitable towards others, I am taking on myself a position of being the all-knowing judge who, who can discern the heart of man. So when it comes to, well, this person said this, or, or my child did that, or my boss is doing this, if there's room there to be charitable and assume the best, we can strive for that. So we are merciful with others. We are striving to become like Jesus. And lastly, point number three, the true disciples of Christ are more careful about their own life than the life of those around them. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, Brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye, when you you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck that is in your brother's eye. 
You know, Jesus' point here is dead serious, but he uses a humorous, almost cartoonish illustration to drive home his point. You cannot take the speck, a little piece of sawdust, out of your brother's eye if you have a beam that is coming out of your own eye. In fact, the word for, for beam here it, it's, would be used to describe the main beam that would support an entire building in a construction project. It's an obvious exaggeration to drive home his point. You know, if you were to be out in the lobby and you think, oh, I got, this, I got something in my eye, it might be a gnat, maybe something got into my eye, and you walk in here and you say, I need some help, the guy with the log sticking out of his eye is the least qualified to help you. Now, unfortunately, he's probably going to be the first one to offer. Jesus' teaching is that the beam needs to be removed from your eye before you can perform eye surgery on someone else. And so here's what I, I, I think Jesus is not doing. I don't think Jesus is comparing specific sins here that you can only correct others whose sins you determine to be smaller than you. He's not weighing out sins here. Oh, you're a big-time sinner. You can't help this little-time sinner. I don't think he's playing that game. I think Jesus is poking fun at, he's undermining, he's cutting the legs off of this idea that we would seek to correct others before we first correct ourselves. You see, we have a tendency to set ourselves up as moral watchdogs over others, to be the Sherlock Holmes of others' lives so that we might condemn and judge them. But Jesus is calling us to first consider our own selves. You know, sometimes in marriage counseling, in the first session, you'll say, what seems to be the problem? And, you know, they're both pointing at each other. Well, this is what Jesus is preaching against here. That your biggest problem is not someone else. It's the beam that's sticking out of your own eye. The admonition is to first purify yourself. In other words, that we might take our own sin most seriously. More seriously than we take the sins of others. My sin is the beam. Your sin is the speck. If we don't, if we don't seek to purify ourselves, if we don't seek to consider our own hearts first, we are hypocrites, Jesus says. A hypocrite seems to be concerned about sin, but is really only concerned about the sins of everyone else. They're not really concerned about sin. They're concerned about your sin and not my sin. The hypocrite has 20-20 vision when it comes to spotting everyone else's specks but they miss the beam in their own eye. They miss where they fail to love and obey God. So what do we do? Well, Jesus tells us exactly what to do. First, take the log out of your own eye. One writer said that correcting others without correcting ourselves first, in other words, those who have a beam in our eye, is a pseudo-religion that is constantly seeking to make everyone else better, more religious. And he says, and the cure is a mirror. The cure is to see ourselves. 
The cure is to look into the mirror of God's word and see that, man, I have fallen so short. I am in desperate need of the grace of God in Christ. You see, even as I started to type out my sermon, I really wanted to start with this joke about verse 37. Judge not lest you be judged. And we'd all laugh together about how that's the favorite verse of the world. And uh, I heard one preacher say in, you know, in perfect King James English, they'll quote this verse. But, uh, you know, as I began to write out my sermon, I began to realize, man, if I do this and we all laugh together, ha, ha, look at them, we are potentially promoting in our hearts the very attitude that Jesus is condemning here. I began to search my own heart. And I began to realize that in my own heart, man, it's so easy to point out there. It's so easy to say, look at these guys. Don't they misuse Scripture for their own gain? Let's all look at them. Even when we, when we preach about legalism, and what's our temptation? Oh, look at that church, the way they do it. It's so easy just to just to point out and point out and point out. So we can talk about the world, and there's places we might even laugh about the world. But I think this morning, let's commit right now that we will take our sin, our personal sin, more seriously this morning than the sins of others. Whether it's others in this very room, or it's others out there, we will take our sin most seriously. So for for you children, for you kids, when you're playing with your, with your brother or your sister and something starts to go wrong, I would encourage you, take your sin most seriously because you're going to want to point to your brother or your sister and say, no, they did it. If you're married this morning, I would encourage you, own your own sin. Own your sin. If there's conflict at work, Seek to discern your own heart first. Conflict is so rarely a one-way street. Let's seek to own our own sin, to take seriously our own hearts. So first, Jesus says, take the beam out of your own eye. We seek to see ourselves clearly. Then we work by God's grace to put off that sin that we find in our lives. Then, then we are in a position to humbly and gently and carefully say, brother, I, th- I think you got something in your eye, and I think I can help you. You see, Jesus is not saying, don't worry about the speck because you have a beam. It's no big deal. The speck is no big deal. Yours, that's not what he's saying. If you've had something in your eye, even a speck, you know that that's a big deal, and you want that to be dealt with. You see, both the speck and the beam, according to Jesus, are faults worthy of correction. They are sins that need to be addressed. So what is condemned in this passage is not not seeing a speck and seeking to help your brother or your sister remove it. What is condemned is trying to do that without first examining yourself and first understanding your own Uh, limitations, your own sin before God. So what does it look like then when a church family continually believes and obeys this passage? You see, Jesus' command is to your brothers, your brothers, your brothers. Well, what does it look like when a church continually presses in and obeys this text? Well, we will treat our brothers and sisters with the same hope and gentleness 
and love with which we've been treated by Christ. See, right doctrine is meant to produce right living. Right doctrine produces churches that ooze the love and mercy of God in Christ. So we want to remain a church where it's hard to stay in your sin, in my sin. Not because, we don't want to make it hard because, oh, when we find out where you sin, there's going to be these judgmental stairs every Sunday, and it's going to be really hard to be in that church because, no, we want to make it hard to remain in sin, not because of judgmentalism or condemnation or lack of forgiveness or bitterness or, or stinginess. We want to make it hard to remain in your sin because we're going to hold out for you the love and grace and mercy and kindness of God that we see in the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he has come to save sinners from the very sins that we want to persist in we will proclaim the death and resurrection of jesus as the only hope for people like me and people like you we will make it hard to remain in sin because we will walk in humility as those who recognize that we have beings ourselves that need to be dealt with We will rejoice in the grace that has been shown to us through Christ and remember that apart from him, we are absolutely and completely helpless. So who am I to come to you with any other disposition but a fellow struggler in the trenches? Let's walk together. So we will hold out our hand and say, let's walk together and and seek and try and fight and and, and walk this path of trying to become like Jesus. We will approach fellow sinners, and that's all of us together in this room. We are fellow sinners. We will approach one another and say, you know, I'm not the pro. I'm not the pro telling you how to live. I'm just a fellow struggler trying to walk this path. Let's go together. I think I've learned a thing or two along the way and down the road. There's, there's Dan. He's learned a few things. So let's just, keep, let's just keep pressing down this path together. I'll walk with you. I'll walk with you as we seek to become like Christ. You know, as I considered this text, I rejoiced in many ways that I've seen this very thing here at our church. God has been very kind to us in that way, but I never want us to consider that we've arrived. We've got room to grow, brothers and sisters. I was reading a memoir that was loaned to me about a a man, he was kind of recalling being brought up in Mississippi, and he tells this funny story of the first time he shot a dove you know, his dad was an avid hunter. All the classmates he had in school was an avid hunter. But this, this dude was just not an avid hunter. He was torn. He didn't really want to shoot birds. But it's a rite of passage in Mississippi. People are suspicious of you down there if you haven't killed anything. South Dakota may not be too different. <laughs> so he tells us this funny story of going out. And he really wants to kill something so he can go to school and tell his friends that he killed something and hopefully just be done with this. And so his dad hands him a 12-gauge shotgun and he misses what seems to be a million doves as he's just trying to shoot. Whoops. I'm not used to that being on. Um, As he shoots and so finally at the end of the day, all these birds, he hasn't killed one, he's shot at a million and and he thinks it's done and he's failed another year and at Christmas time he's going to have to explain why he hasn't killed anything yet to his family. 
And he says, then there, here comes this bird. And it rises up out of the grass. And he turns on it. And he fires. And he hits it. And the bird falls down. And his dad says, you've done it. You've killed something. But as they walk up to the bird, they realize it's, it's still alive. And now he has to kill it again. And he has this great line. He says, this is the story of my hunting life, one that would unfurl over the next decade. The thing killed from afar is not killed and must be killed again at close range. For most of us here, I think our self-righteousness has been killed from far away. We know that our own righteousness is nothing before God, we know that it cannot earn us any sense of standing before the Lord. We know better than to brag about our own sense of righteousness. We know better than to boast of our own goodness. Our self-righteousness has been killed from far away, but up close, up close, we've got room to grow. It needs to be killed again. Our self-righteousness needs to be put to death over and over and over again. How do we do that? We remind ourselves partially of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Titus 3, I think Paul connects these ideas of sort of this gospel, this, this gospel that so changes people that it impacts their, the way they treat others. Titus 3, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy towards all people. And that sounds like what Jesus is, is getting at here. Well, what does, what does Paul then rest this command on? For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of our God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs, according to the hope of eternal life. What creates in us a gentleness? What creates in us a lack of judgmentalness, a lack of quarreling? What what creates in us a, a kind and courteous spirit? What produces a culture of grace inside a local church? The gospel. The gospel of Christ. The gospel where we who were dominated by the same sins that we want to now judge and condemn. The gospel by which we are now forgiven and made righteous in Christ, justified by his grace, and become heirs, heirs of eternal life. Let's consider Christ. Let's consider Christ and seek to become like him in the way that we view and love others. Let's pray together. Lord, we are grateful for your word, even when it hurts us to consider our own heart. May we be faithful about searching out the the beams that lay in our eyes, that you may give us eyes to see, that you may rid us of every sense of self-righteousness, and that we may then treat others with 
grace and mercy. We may be forgiving and generous. All to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.